Okay, so thanks for coming to this lecture. The first in a series called Approaching Shakespeare, and they're all on specific plays. The first one is on Othello. Next week, I'm going to talk about Henry V. In third week, I'm going to talk about Measure for Measure. In fourth week, I'm going to talk about Macbeth. Anybody superstitious can stay at home that day. Fifth week, The Winter's Tale. In each of the lectures, I'm going to aim to approach a specific critical question about the play, and in doing that, to demonstrate different methodological approaches and different kinds of material you might bring to bear on your Shakespeare work. And my hope, then, is that the lectures will give you some kind of a toolkit for approaching the other plays that I'm not talking about uh, and ways that you might push through the sometimes overwhelming body of Shakespeare criticism. I'm actually not mostly, I think I've stuck to this, I'm not mostly telling you or trying to tell you what to think about the play or even particularly to give you my own readings, but rather to plot how you might put together an argument about Shakespeare, about any Shakespeare play and what kinds of evidence you might use to do that. I do hope some of you will come back to the subsequent lectures, but uh, the lectures will, as I said, all be on iTunes. Hello, if you're listening to it on iTunes, that's a weird kind of prolepsis moment, but... (laughs) And that's the evidence that really is a live lecture, small laugh. Um, so you can listen to it when it's more convenient to you, but it would be nice for me if some people do come to hear it live. <laughs> okay, so let's start with Othello. And the umbrella topic, the umbrella question on this play that I've chosen to focus on is the question, what is the significance to the play of Othello's race? What's the significance to the play of Othello's race? I'm going to start by thinking about the play's title page. Othello is probably written in about 1603-1604, just at the time of James's accession to the English throne, and around the time when Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's men, are taken under the king's patronage and they become the king's men. We'll come back to the significance, I think, of the dating of Othello uh, in a minute. Dating Othello is rather dangerous. That's a joke as well. Okay. (laughs) Okay. That was an unscripted joke even. The play is not, however, printed until 1622. The title of the play then is The Tragedy of Othello, The Moor of Venice. The Moor of Venice, I think, is a kind of oxymoron. Oxymoron is a literary figure very important uh, to the play Othello. There are lots of examples of it, perhaps most prominently in that phrase, honest Iago, that we keep uh, getting so, uh, so, so solemnly. So the Moor of Venice is a kind of oxymoron. A Moor is not of Venice. A Moor cannot be of Venice. And in some ways, I think we could see the whole play exploring this paradox of a man who both is and is not of Venice. The parallel with The Merchant of Venice is rather interesting, I think. That play, The Merchant of Venice, is entered into the stationer's register with a double title, The Merchant of Venice or The Jew of Venice. And in that case, the two titles are syntactically equivalent, but I think they make quite different use of the word of. The merchant can be of Venice, and as Shylock finds out in the trial scene, a Jew can never be of Venice, as in equal under the law, a citizen, and so on. Looking at the title pages of Shakespeare's plays in print is a really fascinating insight into the development both of his reputation, so early plays in print by Shakespeare don't have his name on them, later plays do, and so do some plays we think 
not to be by Shakespeare, so there's a sense that Shakespeare's name uh, sells plays even if rather than identifies them. By the time Othello is published posthumously in 1622, Shakespeare dies 1616, the preface to the reader tells us the author's name is sufficient to vent his work. And if you look at title pages, you can also see what might have been attractive to their first readers or audiences, particularly in long descriptive titles. You can see all the early printed quartos of Shakespeare's plays. A quarto is a small, cheap book made by uh, folding a piece of pieces of paper in, in, uh, into quarters, two folds, uh, hence quarto. So these are small, cheap, unbound, pamphlet-like publications of individual plays, uh, and some of Shakespeare's plays are published published in this format during his lifetime. You can see all those early printed quartos digitised, very well digitised, uh, freely online at the British Library. If you Google British Library Shakespeare quartos, you'll get the link. So let's go back to that title. More is a word with dense associations. Two meanings, as the OED online tells us, jostle. One is geographical. The more is an inhabitant of North Africa, Mauritania, present-day Morocco and Algeria. The second meaning, which is associated but not entirely identical with this one, is a more general designation, more meaning Muslim. Much critical ink has been spilled on whether we are to understand Othello as an ethnically marked inhabitant of North Africa, the noble Arab captured in a contemporary image of the Barbary ambassador to London in 1600, very easy image to find uh, online. Shakespeare's company performed at court uh, during the time of that embassy, and so they may well have seen uh, these visitors from North Africa. Or whether the epithet black, when Iago uh, sneeringly says, we will drink the health of black Othello, or his description uh, that an old black ram is tupping your white ewe, coupled maybe with Rodrigo's description of thick lips, whether this cluster of associations is supposed to suggest the racial typing of sub-Saharan Africa. Of course, this distinction, whether Othello is uh, an Arab from North Africa or a black man from uh, sub-Saharan Africa, this distinction is no more innocent now than then. For generations of earlier critics who were brought up on the inferiority of black slaves in America and the inferiority of the colonised peoples of the British Empire, the question of what kind of Moor Othello was was crucial to the sympathy that the play might generate and therefore crucial to the whole notion of tragedy. Put uh, basely, uh, a black Othello, a, uh, a dark, racially marked black Othello was less sympathetic and therefore less tragic than an Arabic one. Uh, and a lot of what I'm saying about Othello is deeply enmeshed in the racial uh, ideologies and prejudices uh, of critics writing about the play, in which I think I would include ourselves. So, <clears throat> the arguments that Othello is sympathetic... Uh, have tended to identify him as a noble Moor of North Africa. Arguments that find him less sympathetic have tended to link that with the idea that he was, a, he, he was intended as a black man, a Negro. Thomas Reimer, writing at the end of the 17th century, Reimer, R-Y-M-E-R, is one of the first uh, critics of a Shakespeare, uh, substantial critics of a Shakespeare play. He's writing about Othello and he doesn't like it. 
He calls the play The Tragedy of a Handkerchief and A Bloody Farce, therefore something unworthy of the designation of tragedy. And this idea about the play's genre, and this is the theme I'm going to come back to later in the lecture, is inseparable from his view that, the, uh, that to have a black hero is very improper. He derives from the play the false morality. This may be a caution to all maidens of quality how, without their parents' consent, they run away with blackamoors. So did Shakespeare intend Othello to be a Muslim? I don't know the answer to this question. I don't think we can answer the question. But I think there are some different ways we might investigate it. And the first two I'm going to take up uh, is firstly a close reading of the play itself and secondly a reading of Shakespeare's sources. We might feel that to return to the text of the play is always the answer, the way to answer any literary question. But that turns out here as very often to be a rather difficult manoeuvre. There are very few references to Othello's religion in the play, although those there are may suggest he's intended to be a Christian convert. He uses the phrase, by heaven. In fact, he's the only character in the play to use that phrase, by heaven. He accuses his brawling soldiers of having turned Turk, and he bids Desdemona pray before he murders her. Iago vows to make him renounce his baptism. And some productions, notably that by, by and starring Laurence Olivier, have marked Othello's decline as a visible turning from adopted Christianity. Olivier has Othello rip a prominent cross he's been wearing around his neck at the point of this religious reconversion or conversion back to Islam. There are lots of problems, of course, implicit in that interpretation where Christianity equals self-control, rationality, lucidity, Islam equals madness, murder, uh, insane rage, and so on. You can see snippets, some of them quite long, uh, of Olivier's Othello on YouTube, although I can't vouch for the uh, legality of their having been put there. That's a disclaimer, iTunes. <laughs> they know all about intellectual property on iTunes. Crucial to this religious interpretation, then, is Othello's last long final, uh, final speech. Soft you, a word or two before you go. I have done the state some service, and they know it. No more of that. I pray you, in your letters, when you shall these unlucky deeds relate, speak of me as I am. Nothing extenuate, nor set down aught in malice. Then must you speak of one that loved not wisely but too well, of one not easily jealous but being wrought, perplexed in the extreme, of one whose hand, like the base Indian, threw a pearl away richer than all his tribe, of one whose subdued eyes, albeit unused to the melting mood, dropped tears as fast as the Arabian trees their medicinable gum. Set you down this, and say besides that in Aleppo once, where a malignant and a turbaned Turk took a Venetian and traduced the state, I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him thus. It's a fabulous speech, a wonderful example of that exotic lyricism famously dubbed the Othello music, 
by G. Wilson Knight, uh, and it, which tells us something about the oral quality of the play's rhythms and registers, which might be something you'd want to follow up, perhaps via Verdi's opera Otello, or the jazz musical Catch My Soul. As a sideline, I'd advise any of you who is here because you're studying Shakespeare uh, for the finals paper to use your work on Shakespeare really to write about things you know about and you're interested in. If you've been dying to write about children's literature or manga comics or cinema or theatre or, um, I don't know, American literature or advertising or something. I mean, Shakespeare does give you a chance uh, to do all of those things. I think that's a much better technique for approaching this paper than grinding dutifully through... Shakespeare's ideas of kingship or some old stuff like that. You know, try, try and play to, your, uh, pl- play to your strengths. So, back to that big speech. It's a speech that captures Othello's complicated position. He is of Venice, as we had in the title. He is its defender against the turbaned Turk. But he is also the Turk himself. The gesture of killing that Turk is turned on himself in his suicide I took by the throat the circumciser dog and smote him. Thus, stage direction, he kills himself. So the play and its main character ends on a fissure, an incompatible religious-ethnic split, which we might think of as having taken the life of its protagonist. It's striking that that final speech doesn't at all mention, except in grandiloquent and exoticised terms of value, the pearl richer than all his tribe, the speech doesn't at all mention the small matter of the murder of his wife. Anti-Othello critics, most notably perhaps T.S. Eliot, have been exasperated by the extreme self-centredness of this final speech. Eliot's famous comment is that this is Othello cheering himself up. What seems more interesting to me is uh, that the self in that phrase, cheering himself up, is actually much more problematic than Eliot allows. Any sense of a unified self seems to have been lost in this parable of multiple outsiderness. Instead, the interweaving of military and marital narratives, which we're going to come to later here, uh, here returns to the end of the play the fatal bedchamber, a very small, uh, enclosed, claustrophobic scene. Um, do you remember Amelia is knocking on the door outside, trying to get in, and there's this terrible sense of claustrophobia about this, this scene in, uh, in the bedchamber. Uh, in Othello's words, the bedchamber expands out into a huge geopolitical realm in which Christians uh, and, and Muslims are fighting in various uh, flashpoints. In his speech, it's Aleppo, the multicultural port of Aleppo, Uh, Elsewhere in the play, it's Venice or Cyprus. If you know Cyprus now, you'll know it's still a divided island and still, uh, because of its historic, uh, but both its strategic importance in the Mediterranean, but also um, the the fight over whether it's part of um, Christendom or uh, the uh, Ottoman Empire. So, in some ways, I think, is Othello a Muslim is a question the play asks rather than answers. I think that's probably going to be the case with a lot of the questions that critics ask about Shakespeare plays. They're questions which are generated by the plays rather than answered by them. Uh, And our contingent answers are always going to be ways of thinking, actually thinking about the question. It might therefore be interesting to view Othello alongside other conversion narratives in contemporary drama. There are uh, a set of Turk plays uh, collected by Daniel Vitkus. 
which might be, uh, might be good to look at. And those of you, again, with an eye to the exams may be reassured to know that markers of paper two are always keen for candidates to place Shakespeare in the context of early, other early modern dramatists. And particularly if you can do it away from some uh, very uh, routine sort of gestures. We don't really want the Spanish tragedy in Hamlet because it's just too, too common. We don't really want the Jew of Malta and the Merchant of Venice. Again, too common. Uh, it, it's something that lots of people have done. And I want to encourage you to try and step out a bit and do some things which are, uh, w- which are more unexpected. And thinking about Turk plays, the three Turk plays collected by Vitkus uh, might be a way uh, to do that. <coughs> We all know how forbidden it is to try to deduce an author's intention from his works. And we also know that, like many forbidden things, it's very tempting to try to do so. If you're a secret authorial intentions junkie, the acceptable methadone version of this habit is a study of Shakespeare's sources. We're going to come back to these in later lectures, particularly uh, when I get to The Winter's Tale in fifth week, and there I'll want to try and complicate the idea that Shakespeare is in control of his source material. There's often a way in which the source material retains a kind of ghostly hold over the play, however much Shakespeare seems to have uh, have changed it. But what I want to say today is that, firstly, looking up Shakespeare's sources is really easy. They're pretty much all gathered together in Geoffrey Bullock's big big series of books, Narrative and Dramatic Sources of Shakespeare. So that's Bullock, B-U-L-L-O-U-G-H, Narrative and Dramatic Sources of Shakespeare, which which exists in Oxford in about 100 copies. Uh, So it should be quite easy to find. You can also look at it in a very... um, what I find not a very helpful interface on the Arden Shakespeare database, which you can get to uh, via uh, Solo. So Bullock gathers together the... Uh, acknowledged sources for Shakespeare's plays and he lists them, you know, he clusters them by play, so it couldn't really be easier. Except that, by definition, Bullock leaves out the things that don't seem to have influenced Shakespeare's uh, writing of the play. In some ways, what's, what's been left out is often the most interesting thing, what bits Shakespeare looked at and thought, I don't want that uh, in my play. So it's worth sometimes going back from Bullock to the uh, complete sources, which will be on Ebo. Now, Shakespeare's main source for Othello is the Italian prose writer Giraldo Cinthio, C-I-N-T-H-I-O, Cinthio's series of stories, which is called Hecatomythi. Hecatomythi was published in 1565. He also uses this source for another play he's writing at the same time as Othello, Measure for Measure, and I'm going to come back to that later in this lecture and in more detail in third week. In Cinthio's story, from which... Shakespeare takes Othello. None of the characters except Desdemona, she's called Disdemona, is named. We have a character called Moore, Shakespeare's Othello, a captain, Shakespeare's Cassio, and an ensign, Shakespeare's Iago. We might pause for a minute on the way Shakespeare names his central protagonist to see if it bears (coughs) on this question about the significance of Othello's race. We don't actually know where he gets the name Othello, but it may draw on the name Thorello, which Ben Jonson gives to another jealous husband, but this time in a comedy, Every Man in His Humour. We know Shakespeare to have acted in Every Man in His Humour. This lineage, if Shakespeare gets something of the name Othello from Thorello in Every Man in His Humour, this suggests that what's important about Othello is that he's jealous, not that he's black. 
whatever black means. Okay, so he becomes a type of a jealous husband rather than a type of a moor. Jealousy is not uh, a racial identity. Irrational jealousy is not a particular quality of Moors in Shakespeare's own work. Aaron, black character in Titus Andronicus, has lots of flaws, but sexual jealousy is not one of them. Neither Claudio in Much Ado About Nothing nor Leontes in The Winter's Tale, both of whom are husbands who fall prey to a manic jealousy about their (coughs) wife's uh, fidelity. Neither of those is racially marked. So that possible connection to every man in his humour brings out a kind of comic structure maybe underpinning Othello, which I'm also going to come back to. It may be that Shakespeare intended his name Othello, perhaps with a hard T, Othello, to recall Ottoman, a, play we, uh, a name we do get in the play, uh, Ottoman Turk, and thus to reiterate his otherness. Perhaps giving him a first name, I hesitate to say a Christian name, is a way to humanise and to individuate Othello. He is a person, not a type. He's a type in Cynthia's story. He's just called Moore. Although we then have to notice that the person in the play who mentions Othello's name most is Othello himself, and that every other character, including Desdemona, calls him Moore more than once. For Cynthia, though, the unnamed Moore is both marked and unmarked by his race. There's one interesting thing about the source, uh, the, the source material. In Cynthia, we hear that the Moor and Desdemona live in happiness after they're married in, in Venice uh, for many years. They have a period of a happy marriage. There's nothing intrinsically catastrophic about their relationship in the source, as actually I think there is in Shakespeare's play. Let's look at how Shakespeare structures Act 1, Scene 1 of Othello to try and uh, push that point again, how problematic he sees the relationship between Othello and Desdemona. Act 1, Scene 1 of Othello is a night scene with Iago and Rodrigo rousing the sleeping senator Brabantio with coarse revelations about his daughter Desdemona having eloped with the Moor. Brabantio ends that opening scene arranging a party of officers to apprehend her and the Moor. They're going to be tipped off as to their whereabouts by Rodrigo. The second scene of the play sees Othello talking to Iago, who is disingenuously warning him about Brabantio's anger. A party with lights approaches Othello and Iago, and naturally we assume that this is Brabantio's posse come to get him. But no, it's the Duke's servant summoning Othello for a conference about Cyprus. In the next scene, these two stories come together. Two things have happened. One, the elopement of a daughter without her father's permission, and in this story, Othello is potentially at fault. In the other, an attack or a feared attack on Cyprus by the Turkish fleet, Othello is potentially the saviour. He's a solution to the problem rather than its cause. A sardonically rhyming exchange makes the play's equivalence between the elopement between the Moor and the Venetian on the one hand and the threat to the Venetian property by the Turks on the other. The Duke tries to cheer Brabantio up after he hears that Desdemona has willingly chosen Othello for her husband rather than being uh, bewitched. He urges him to accept the inevitable. When remedies are passed, the griefs are ended by seeing the worst which late on hopes depended... The robbed that smiles steals something from the thief. He robs himself that spends a bootless grief. 
Um, people, people in early Shakespeare's plays often uh, rhyme, end rhyme, uh, you know, blank verse. What's blank about blank verse is that it doesn't rhyme. Uh, but there are exceptions, lots of exceptions to blank verse in Shakespeare's, uh, in Shakespeare's work, including rhymed verse like this. Early in Shakespeare's career, people can use end, end rhymed verse like that that I've just read quite seriously. But by this point, it sounds sing-song as it does to us now. It sounds insincere or it sounds sort of a bit bumper sticker kind of, uh, a kind of philosophy which isn't really fit, uh, f- f- fit for the complexities of the world. So uh, the Duke's trying to tell Brabantio, um, you know, just cheer up about it. Um, uh, we, we can stand anything so long as we're sort of cheerful. And Brabantio's reply is very telling. So let the Turk of Cyprus us beguile. We lose it not so long as we can smile. Okay. Brabantio says that the loss of his daughter is like the loss of Cyprus. And you can see that Othello is a really interesting linchpin in both these, this domestic story and this more uh, uh, military one. That the elopement of Desdemona and Othello is a microcosm or a metaphor for a broader geopolitics is hinted at but never developed. Or to put that point another way, it's hard to know whether the conflict between Venice and the Turk is the background for a domestic tragedy which is really about a marriage, is what Othello is really about, a marriage which breaks down. Or is the marriage uh, a metaphor, a crucible for a broader discussion about the savage incompatibility of Christian and Muslim in the play's imagination? So which is foreground and which is background? We might just look at one more aspect of the source story to try and focus on Shakespeare's particular telling of this story, and that's the role of Iago. We all know the cliché of Iago's motiveless malignity, motiveless malignity, as Coleridge put it. The fact that Iago gives many excuses for his behaviour. Othello slept with Emilia. He, Iago has been passed over for promotion. But these never seem to offer sufficient or logical causes for the destruction that he brings about. He offers only an obstinate silence, what you know you know, when Othello asks him, demand that demi-devil why he hath thus ensnared my soul and body. This is an excellent example of what Stephen Greenblatt Uh, in a readable book, uh, biography of Shakespeare, called Will in the World, Will in the World, calls Shakespeare's strategic opacity. Strategic opacity. And by that he means that Shakespeare purposely makes motivation opaque where in the sources it was clear. Thus Shakespeare strips out explanations and substitutes questions for answers. The opening of King Lear is a good case in point. If we read the earlier play, King Lear, L-E-I-R, one of Shakespeare's sources for the play, we can see there that Lear's love test is explicitly prompted by the death of his uh, wife, his own feelings of mortality, his concern about his daughters without a mother to look after them. But Shakespeare avoids this kind of prologue and begins his play already with that ominous division of the kingdoms, and makes, therefore, Lear's motivation a question to be explored rather than a fact to be conveyed. In Othello, the motivation of Iago is clearly removed from what Shakespeare found in his sources. In Cynthio, the ensign Iago professes himself in love with Desdemona, and it's being in love with Desdemona that prompts his behaviour throughout the story. 
If we take this away, the evidence that Iago, the clear statement in Cynthia that Iago, the Iago character is in love with Desdemona, there may be just a slight vestige of that in that flirtation between Iago and Desdemona on the quay side as they wait for Othello to come back to Cyprus, which is a scene people have found, critics have found very uncomfortable. They don't want a flirty Desdemona. Um, as if that doesn't quite fit somehow the, the innocence they want to preserve, uh, uh, which, which is an odd, uh, odd, odd problem. But if we take away this motivation, we have Iago, uh, an Iago whose motivation is famously opaque. Perhaps it allows that race is part of his hatred of Othello. I do hate him, Iago announces in the play's first scene. And there is something unsettling, perhaps, about the simultaneous attractiveness of Iago and the suspicion that his activity may be racially motivated. The play may draw us unwittingly into racist assumptions about Othello by its clever creation of closeness and sympathy with Iago, the figure who talks to us uh, and and draws us in, and its maintenance of distance from Othello, who's a very... uh, Uh, lofty and aloof figure who never really acknowledges that we're there. I've discussed some of these ideas at more length in my book for the Writers and Their Works series, where I've argued partly for the sake of it, since we don't often do this, that Othello is a deeply racist play and could hardly be otherwise. Uh, But but you'll be entirely welcome to, to, to argue with that. But perhaps here is time to consider the possible significance of Iago's name, the Spanish saint Iago, from which we get Santiago, was known as a conqueror of the Moors following one of his famous exploits, beating the Moorish army in the 10th century. Saint Iago was traditionally pictured on a white horse trampling Moors underfoot. It's the picture that's on the cover of Laurie Maguire's really good book, uh, Studying Shakespeare. And that name uh, and those associations, which Shakespeare bundles up with the character by calling him Iago, may give that figure an agenda which needs to be understood as racial. Okay, so so far I've tried to look at the significance of of Othello's race by reading the play itself closely and by seeing where it deviates from its source as a way of trying to pinpoint what Shakespeare thinks is important. I want now to turn to a couple of other ways of looking at this question, which by extension you might use uh, about similar questions in other plays. <coughs> Firstly, I want to try and think about uh, uh, Othello's race in an early modern context, and secondly, in a more modern context. But I also want to complicate the ways those seem to be distinct, early modern and modern. Our interest in history and in historicism is really, I think, a fig leaf for a kind of presentist narcissism. We're always writing about our own period, really, even when we uh, think we're being uh, historical. Our categories for thinking about race are formed by our own environment quite properly. And we have a big critical investment in using historical evidence to prove that Shakespeare is uniquely liberal and advanced. It would be very difficult for Shakespeare to have the position in our culture that he does if we were to say, but he's a terrible racist or a terrible racist play. So much of the material in, say, Andrew Hadfield's excellent source book on Othello, which gives documents about early modern Venice and about its sexual mores, which are loose, uh, its views of Africans, they are savages, and the treatment of Moors in non-Shakespearean drama, they are wily. This is all used to show how Shakespeare breaks existing stereotypes 
by making a black character a tragic hero. The truth, I think, is more complicated. It's hard to find that there is a stereotype of blackness on the stage before Othello, and therefore clearly we're in danger of importing uh, or back-projecting, retrofitting somehow the play with our own later stereotypes. But if you do want to look at earlier works, you might think about Shakespeare's own moors, Aaron again in Titus Andronicus. Aaron has at least as many of the qualities of Iago as he does of Othello. And the Prince of Morocco, one of Portia's impossible suitors in The Merchant of Venice. His blackness seems a clear visual shorthand for his unsuitability as a husband. He's never going to pick the right casket because he, he wouldn't be a good husband. If you want to look at Moores in other plays, I would have a look at Peel's Battle of Alcazar, George Peel, The Battle of Alcazar. And finally, on this sort of material, I think I would point to Dimpner Callahan's important argument in her book Shakespeare Without Women, Callahan, Shakespeare Without Women. Dimpner Callahan argues Othello was a white man because since there were no black actors, Othello's blackness on the early modern stage was always performed rather than essential. It's always about face paint and a curly wig, not some immutable essence which distinguishes uh, one race from another. And that historical argument links with more recent disputes about how to perform Othello now. A history of white actors playing the role more or less blacked up has been almost entirely superseded by black actors playing Othello. While other roles in Shakespeare plays may be cast in what the Royal Shakespeare Company calls colour-blind ways, so that uh, if you see the current production of As You Like It in Stratford, Charles the Wrestler and Duke Senior are both played by black actors, but there isn't a sense that the character is black. Othello has been segregated from this tendency, presumably because of the view that race is intrinsic to this character, in a way it isn't intrinsic uh, to the majority of parts Shakespeare wrote. But one black actor at the Royal Shakespeare Company has questioned this casting consensus. Hugh Quashie, Q-U-A-R-S-H-I-E, Hugh Quashie, confesses to a nagging suspicion that casting black actors as Othello gives a spurious credence to the play's depiction of a black man and ends by saying that of all the parts in the canon, Othello is the one which should not be played by a black actor. We could address the significance of Othello's race by looking at it in more contemporary terms. Let's take, I'm just going to take one example uh, from film because we're a little bit short of time. Um, And I'm going to take Orson Welles' 1952 film, much the best film uh, of Othello in cinematic terms. I mean, the only one you would probably go to the cinema uh, and and watch. Um, Welles cast himself uh, in the title role. Welles, a white actor, uh, in the title role. But he shoots the whole film uh, in black and white. There's no obvious attempt in this colour palette to identify him as black. And in fact, race is of relatively little relevance to his interpretation of the play. So if you want a version of Othello where race is not important, have a look at Wells' uh, have a look at Wells film. The cinematography, the choice of black and white film, inevitably means that the two colours the play tries to set up as a binary, you are either black or white, 
turn it into shades of grey. That's what makes a black and white film, shades of grey. And it makes the discourse of blackness a poetic, possibly an ethical matter rather than an ethnic one. Or you might look at, there's a, a famous photo-negative version of the play directed by Jude Kelly where Patrick Stewart, a white actor, played Othello amid a largely black cast, a flip, uh, f- flipping the racial polarities. Or at Lawrence Fishburne in the Oliver Parker film of 1995, which casts a prominent black actor uh, in the main role and highlights his otherness by giving him sort of tribal uh, scar markings on his face, but kind of undermines him by having the best actor, uh, the most confident actor in the in the film, uh, Kenneth Branagh as Iago. So it's a kind of black black Othello, but one that we're not perhaps uh, so focused on. Many of those films are available. To borrow from the faculty, uh, you might also look at Julie Hankey's book, uh, H-A-N-K-E-Y. It's a great name for someone writing on Othello. Uh, in the book Shakespeare, Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare in Production uh, series. Recent criticism has been preoccupied with the meaning of Othello's race for the modern academy. Most, critics, most current critics have been most comfortable in arguing that the play interrogates racism... Okay, so it's about racism rather than being racist. Okay, so you'll see a similar manoeuvre with another uncomfortable play like Taming of the Shrew, where it becomes a play about sexism rather, or about misogyny rather than being itself misogynistic. So most critics have been comfortable arguing that the play interrogates racism and that it shows us an Othello whose race is significant not because it makes him essentially savage but because it exposes him to the terrible vulnerability of being an outsider. So race is important uh, to that view view of Othello, not because it makes him behave in a particular way, but because it uh, makes him vulnerable because he's an outsider. Against that, though, we might place the play's strangely voyeuristic preoccupation with Othello and Desdemona's sex life. From that vivid image of the black ram to the final scene in the couple's wedding sheets, a bed brought out onto the stage. Not a particularly easy prop to manoeuvre in the early modern theatre, so it must be important, must be worthwhile to bring out. It's striking that every time the couple seem to be off stage in bed together, some stage convulsion is manufactured to disturb them, a kind of coitus interruptus. Iago rants to Brabantio, the Turks set a fleet for Cyprus, the soldiers all get drunk uh, in Cyprus. The the play seems to be fascinated and rather disturbed by this spectacle of interracial sexuality. In this, we might feel it's actually more inhibited than Titus Andronicus, which ends with uh, a baby born of the relationship between the Moor, Aaron, and his white lover. It may be a sign of Othello's different possibilities that some critics have even wanted to wonder whether the couple ever consummate their relationship, perhaps with a feeling uh, that it would be preferable if they didn't. It's easier to see this attitude in the criticism of the past uh, if you look at um, the selections at the beginning of the case book uh, or the, those kinds of things where you get, get snippets of uh, early criticism. Um, but I think it's probably at, it probably suggests attitudes which are still prevalent. In this respect, the significance of Othello's race must be that it engages with categories we still find it difficult to talk about. 
I've just been at a conference in Shakespeare on France where one of my French colleagues told me that she had replaced her set Shakespeare text Macbeth with Othello. She felt that this would enable her students in France, a country which is trying to ban the burqa and deport the Roma, to discuss issues of race in the play and beyond. I didn't know really whether to be pleased. I think if you got your racial politics from Othello, you'd probably be even worse than France. <laughs> okay, the final thing I want to talk about uh, is genre. The critic Frederick Jameson has made a useful contribution to genre theory by dividing ideas of genre into two categories. I'm going to go over this quite quickly because I'm going to uh, do it again uh, when we come to Measure for Measure. Jameson has two categories and he calls them syntactic, on the one hand from syntax, syntactic and semantic. Syntactic and semantic. Syntactic ideas of genre are structural. So the syntax of tragedy, according to Jameson, might be the decline of a significant person, uh, catharsis, those kinds of things. That would be the syntax of tragedy. Semantic ideas about genre are tonal. So the semantics of tragedy would be uh, serious, lofty, philosophical, meaningful. They're all the kind of tonal things we associate with tragedy. Not funny, serious. And where genre is being played with in Shakespeare... Uh, if you're thinking about The Winter's Tale, if you're thinking about uh, Measure of Measure, all those, uh, All's Well That Ends Well, whatever, problem plays, uh, all those um, uh, playing with genre in Shakespeare tend to be a clash between syntactic and semantic properties, so that it has the structure of one play and the tonal uh, properties of another. There's a famous shorthand for ideas of inductive reasoning beloved of American conservatives. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it probably is a duck. If duck is tragedy, stay with me, <laughs> Othello is a duck which doesn't really look or sound like one, just as Measure for Measure is a play that sounds and looks like one but isn't. The proximity of the writing of these two plays and their shared source material helps us to argue maybe that this is a period of conscious generic experimentation by Shakespeare, that having written comedies and histories during the 1590s, he's pushing the possibilities of comedy in Measure for Measure, and he's drawing on comic frameworks for Othello. Let me explain a bit more what I mean about the second part of that sentence, comic frameworks for Othello. The bit on Measure for Measure will have to wait for a couple of weeks. How is Othello like a comedy? There are many aspects of comic structure in Othello. The witty, clever servant Iago is a figure from the comic playwright Plautus and he's often depicted on stage laughing at his own cleverness, memorably dubbed by W.H. Auden, the joker in the pack, the joker in the pack. Iago seems to mark a stage transition from the comic servant figures like Lancelot Gobbo in The Merchant of Venice or the Dromios in Comedy of Errors towards figures of more malign agency like the malcontent Bossola in The Duchess of Malfi, which you may have done last year. Part of Iago's great attractiveness is his plotting. And plotting has tended to be a feature of comedy rather than of tragedy. So too much plot tends to be what happens in comedy rather than tragedy. And in this, Thomas Reimer's dismissive tragedy of a handkerchief might turn out to be a useful <coughs> observation. 
the overstage managed intrigues making Othello believe Cassio is discussing Desdemona when he's really talking about Bianca, and the emphasis on the comic prop of a handkerchief. These all ally the plays unfolding less to the workings of chance uh, and the anger of the gods in classical tragedy, but more, and more to the human interventions of characters like the people in Much Ado About Nothing who want to get Beatrice and Benedict together. Okay, so in comedies, plots are usually people working hard to make things happen. Um, and that's what happens in, in, in Othello. That's what's comic about the, the structure of Othello. Uh, in tragedy, it's not so, usually not quite so much about human agency. The figure of the jealous husband, which we've already had from every man uh, in his humour, is a figure from comedy. Shakespeare knows that when he uses it in Much Ado About Nothing and The Merry Wives of Windsor, both of which end in the jealous husband being brought to his senses and a comic resolution. It's a rule of thumb in Shakespeare, possibly even in life, uh, that the men who think their wives are having an affair never are, and the ones where they are never know. Um, Othello may flirt with the possibility that the uh, jealous husband will come round at the end, that things can be resolved. In the terrible slowness of the scene in which Othello prepares to and then murders Desdemona, it seems so spun out and so long, so attenuated, as if it's waiting for somebody uh, to come in and stop it. Uh, it's, like, uh, it, it, it's like the woman attacked, you know, attached to the railway tracks or something. Uh, it, everything slows down at that point because we know that somebody's going to come in uh, and stop it. That, that, I think the play is, is teasing us with that possibility, although we never get it. Even Desdemona momentarily returning to life after she has been smothered uh, by uh, Othello may be a last gasp, as it were, of a comic resolution that maybe it's actually going to be all right, but she just uh, expires uh, without any further, uh, further activity. Act one of Othello is a miniature comedy, lovers overcome differences to be together. In Verdi's opera Othello, he does away with the whole of the first act, beginning instead with the storm that brings the couple to Cyprus. It's a neat interpretation of the opening as all just a kind of extended storm, uh, which in Twelfth Night and in The Tempest is something which is going to usher in comic calm. So something which starts stormily, you think is going to end in calm. So does the presence of comedy in this uh, play make the tragedy more or less tragic? And how does that question of genre, to bring us back to my focus for this lecture, how does that intersect with Othello's race, with Thomas Reimer's scorn that a Moor could ever be considered a tragic hero, and with debates about ethnic, geographical, and ultimately moral connotations of Othello's skin colour? So, in this lecture I've tried to approach the question of the significance of Othello's race via a range of different methodologies, comparing it with the source, thinking about other plays by Shakespeare and by his contemporaries, through criticism, through performance, and through a reading of the language and structure of the play. Next week I want to try something similar with Henry V. Ducks strangely recur, as will questions of national identity, just wars in the Elizabethan period and in our own, and Shakespeare's relation to the genre of history. Thank you.